It's 2024, and welcome to episode 11 of Hosted Payload, the satellite and space law podcast. From the Wiley Law Firm in Washington, D.C., I'm Henry Gola. Cher wanted to turn back time, but Metallica says time marches on. In Interstellar, Christopher Nolan asks if both these concepts can coexist. It's time to rewind to this 2014 classic and talk Tesseracts and the reconnaissance with Aaron Boone from FCC Commissioner Nathan Symington's office. But first, Chloe Hawker drops by to give us all the space and satellite news we can handle in the orbital debrief. It's a new year, a new season, I guess, of a podcast, and it's time for a new orbital debrief. Hi, Chloe. How are you? I'm doing great, Henry. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I think we could still say that for a little <laughs> bit longer. What is going on in satellite and space news this month? Well, we do have sort of a, a New Year's piece of news here. So on Friday, JAXA, Japan's space agency, accomplished the first lunar landing of 2024. Japan became the fifth country to successfully land a spacecraft on the moon after India became the fourth country last year. All right, great start to the year. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, it's not totally clear yet whether the smart lander for investigating moon, known as SLIM, has much life left though. At first, JAXA wasn't sure whether the landing itself was successful. JAXA later confirmed a successful landing, but the solar cells on the lander didn't appear to be generating electricity. It seems that the lander may have rolled on landing, which could be causing the issue. Uh, the two lunar excursion vehicles, LEV-1 and LEV-2, have deployed and are operating. So, what are the next steps for this mission? So the main goal of the mission was to demonstrate new precision landing technology. It was intended to allow a landing within 100 meters of an intended orbital, or a, sorry, an intended target location. Whether this was successful though, will have to be confirmed from imaging in orbit. And if it was, this technology could improve future scientific missions. Apparently the precision landing tech earned Slim the nickname Moon Sniper at JAXA, which I love. Uh, yeah. because, <laughs> because JAXA couldn't confirm that the solar cells were generating electricity, though, they powered down the lander after a few hours when its battery levels hit 12% so that it can restart for recovery. Uh, even though it seems SLIM won't be pursuing its other science objectives that were planned on the lunar surface, JAXA says it acquired a lot of data that it's excited to analyze. Moon Sniper sounds like could have could have like been the name for the Bond movie where he went to space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rather than Moonraker. All right, so what's up next? Up next, we have another exploration milestone. The European Space Agency's Mars Express orbiter has discovered what seems to be the largest amount of water ice detected so far on Mars. Wow. So, uh, how much ice is there? According to the radar imaging near the planet's equator, the ice deposits extend 2.3 miles underground and likely have enough water to cover the entire planet in an ocean between 4.9 and 8.9 feet deep. This is much larger than the water ice deposits detected in the polar ice caps. Wow. So uh, what's the significance of this kind of discovery? For one thing, it gives scientists more data as they try to tease out what Mars' climate might have been like in the past. It may also end up being an important resource for future crewed missions because its location near the equator would be more easily accessible by landing crews. 
It is buried pretty deep though and seems to be heavily contaminated by dust, which would make accessing the water ice difficult. But it's another step toward the sustainability of future Mars missions, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. All right, anything else we should be aware of and our listeners for this month? So the FCC recently released a draft order on reconsideration in its orbital debris mitigation proceeding. Uh, It responds to three petitions for reconsideration of the 2020 orbital debris order. The draft order declines to change the rules in response to any of the petitions and clarifies a number of aspects of the 2020 order. Generally, petitions argued, petitioners argued that the new requirements were overly burdensome, that the rules were inconsistent, inconsistent with other agency policies, that non-US licensed systems should not be able to fulfill debris mitigation requirements by showing that their licensing jurisdiction provides effective regulatory oversight, and that the commission should adopt a new rule addressing orbital separation of large NGSO systems. The draft order rejects all of these arguments and provides some extra guidance. Um, And the FCC will vote on the item at its open meeting this week. All right, we'll see if there's any changes between the draft and the, uh, the final order. Chloe, thanks so much as always for the orbital debrief. Yeah, thanks for having me, Henry. All right, welcome back to episode 11 of Hosted Payload. Joining me today is Aaron Boone, the Chief of Staff and Wireless Advisor for FCC Commissioner Nathan Symington. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's an interesting little endeavor. (laughs) Yes, yes. And you chose a very, very simple movie for us to discuss today, the 2014 (laughs) Christopher Nolan movie Interstellar. So uh, in that movie, Matthew McConaughey stars as Cooper, an astronaut turned farmer turned astronaut again uh, in the not too distant future. Earth has become inhabitable, and NASA has a secret program to save the human race. Twelve astronauts have traveled through a wormhole to a distant galaxy to find inhabitable planets, and Cooper and his crew, including Anne Hathaway as Brand, follow to see if there are any promising leads. On Earth, Michael Caine's Dr. Brand's Plan A involves a mass evacuation of Earth to one of those planets, and Plan B involves colonizing anew. The movie has a 74 on Metacritic, 73 on Rotten Tomatoes. Aaron, in FCC parlance for Interstellar, petition to deny or comments in support? Comments in support, for sure. It's one of my favorites. Tell me why. Um, well, I picked this one because I think I recall you telling me that you wanted a, a space theme. Am I wrong about yes. that? Okay, yes. that's what I thought. So I thought, well, that's awesome because I love space movies and theoretical physics. So it's just something that I have been interested in for a long time. And um, what I, yeah, yeah, so you'll get some science movies that are, uh, you know, based on some really cool premises, but then they kind of go off the rails and bring in like a big scary monster at the end. And you're just like, right. I don't, I don't know about that. So this one, you know, this one had uh, a theoretical physicist that was a producer and that consulted throughout the entire thing. And he had like, you know, two specific rules for the movie. He said nothing would violate physical laws, number one, and number two, that any wild speculations that you want to put in there would have to come from science. So that was really cool and one of the things I really liked most about it. Yeah, that that's that, that's that's interesting for, for sure. I mean, you know, where to begin here with all the complex scientific theory that was in this movie. So in, in the movie 
Cooper is guided by an invisible force, right? What he calls them, right? Uh, and what others call them, some sort of beings that have harnessed the power of the fourth and fifth dimension. So who do you think them is in this movie? Who is helping Cooper along this journey? Well, it you find out at the end that it was he was helping himself, right? He was the right. one sending the message. Um, but I think for him in the beginning and before he obviously realized when he entered the black hole that it was, you know, actually him who was reaching out to him, that he felt he and this theme kind of goes throughout the movie because you you also have this, I think they tried to tie in both emotion and sort of this transcendence of time and space along with consciousness. Right. Um, because you've got you see that he has this feeling he knows there's a something to the dust falling down and the bookshelf. And um, but he's not sure what he feels strongly that there's somebody trying to reach him. And then you see it with Brand when she is discussing the fact that she feels like she knew that the third planet was the one, even though they were getting the signals from, I think right. it was the second one, the icy one, that saying that that was the one that was habitable. And she said she couldn't explain what it was, but she knew. And, you know, it, it, part of it had to do with the fact that she had, she was in love with and had a relationship with the the, the guy, the uh, astronaut that was there. Right. But also, right. I think it was sort of along that, the same lines of of tying in, you know, consciousness to um, the themes of the movie, which are that, you know, both space and time and gravity and, you know, and sort of this fourth dimension. Right. And they use that they use they use this this theme that you're talking about, this theme of like love and consciousness as sort of uh, as sort of the the I wouldn't say like the the paradox between science, but but something that was unexplained right in the movie and some some sort of force um, that was that was unexplained by science. So do you think when he's in this in the, when he's in the black hole and he's sending the message when he's gone beyond the event horizon? and is sending this message do you think that he constructed that or and that that he he ended up constructing the the wormhole as well i understood that i understood he was sending the message but i don't think they settled who was helping him do that like who guided him and his robot to to get the quantum data and to set up the wormhole do you think that was him as well the whole time you're right that it's sort of mysterious as to yeah. how he got into, I think, what you call that sort of, you know, space where he was that was, it's called, a, I think it's a, is it a tesseract or? The tesseract, yes. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And so it's, it's very unclear how he got there and how he knew how to, you know, feed the data into the watch. Like, I don't think we really get an answer for that. Right. Um. So that's a good question. And it's one of the things that is a little bit unsatisfying, I think, in the movie. But mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's for a reason. It's because no one really knows what's inside of a black hole. And um, so right. it was one of the one of the things that they could get a lot of artistic license on. Um, but, you know, I mean, one of the theories that I read about it is that it's, um, you know, that because time is reflected in that tesseract as a physical dimension that that was somehow 
you know, the embodiment of how he was able to do that or sort of the, the concept, right. I guess, is really a better word for it. Mm -hmm. It's very hard, I think, for people who live in a three-dimensional world to understand or, or really fully comprehend the concept of a fourth dimension. And sort of like, I think there was like a, it was, um, I'm trying to think of the, they called him two-dimensional man. And it was, it was, Lewis Carroll was describing how if you were in a one-dimensional world and a two-dimensional person was trying to show you, you know, what the second dimension was. Right. So basically, the one-dimensional person would just see that if a sphere was going up and down across a line, you would see a bunch of circles getting bigger and smaller, but that's all you would be able to see. And so you would have no concept of that second dimension because you're not living in it. You, you're not part of it. So. Right. Same thing. one of the really for, cool things yeah. about the movie that um, I liked. Yeah, absolutely. The movie, mostly with, with Dr. Brand, the Michael Caine character, recites multiple times the Dylan Thomas poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. And there seem to be a lot of foil characters on, on each side of that poem. You know, Cooper's daughter, Murph, is a foil for his son, Tom. There's Cooper's crew, and then Matt Damon's character, Dr. Mann. So what did you think of the use of this poem, and do you like the poem? Um, I do like the poem. I, I feel like it was, it, it gave, you know, sort of a, a bit of a poetic beauty to the movie and it was tied together really well. Um, I thought in addition to the poem that the names to some degree were, you know, Dr. Mann at least was somewhat symbolic in that, you know, right. sort of, you know, I think in my mind represented man or mankind getting in their own way, you know, and, 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 and it tied into the sort of emotion piece of everything because he was so desperate for human contact that he didn't, you know, he sort of forgot his mission and what he was there for um, in order to just save himself. And it's, you know, it just sort, sort of demonstrated that human, you know, humanity and that, that the thrust behind the will to live. That's right. Yeah. He kept talking about, you know, survival and doing everything to survive and he had to keep the mission going. But really, at that point, the mission, quote unquote, the mission had become his own survival. Right. That's kind mm -hmm. of what that I think that represented time. <laughs> uh, time is the fourth dimension and the passage of time are, are huge themes in this movie. You know, what scene got to you the most? Cooper watching the videos of his children as they grow up after he's been on the planet where time you know, he could be on a planet for a year, an, I'm sorry, a, 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 you know, an hour, and it mm -hmm. takes seven years um, after that. Or when he gets to see his daughter Murph, you know, 80 Earth years after she last saw him, what got to you more and what do you think was more effective in the movie? Um, I think that I, they were both, they both got to me in two different ways. I think at the end, it was the most emotional because, but you wouldn't have had that emotional reaction to him seeing his daughter as an old woman dying in the hospital if you didn't get the understanding through that. I think they call it time dilation, where they went onto the first planet, the waves, right. and they were there for like three hours. And then they get back on the ship, and you see the guy, the other astronaut is, you know, old. He's, it's, I think, right. 23 years or something like that had elapsed. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think, I guess I, now that I'm talking about it, that one probably got to me the most because I was like, oh my God, wow, like how, 
how can that be? And so, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, after that scene and after he, they got back on the ship and 23 years had passed and you saw just how desolate and desperate that other poor astronaut was who stayed on the ship, um, you realize that um, I, I learned by reading about it because I thought that was so cool. And I when I before I saw the movie, I had understood that it was supposed to be scientifically accurate. And I was like, well, is that really scientifically accurate? accurate i read a little bit about time violation and realized that i guess that the stronger the gravity is in a particular planet the more you'll have that sort of time violation and drag and so that was why 23 years passed for them on that planet right but right it, it, it kept at the same rate and same pace as up in on the actual ship where right. the other astronaut was so right and the tragedy of it was you know they said that the astronaut who who landed there had probably crashed, you know, minutes before they got there on that planet, um, right. which seemed, you know, tragic in itself. The first two planets they go to are tragic. There's that one where the astronaut is dead and it's sort of like a false ping that's going out that this planet is good to be inhabited. And then you get the, you, then you get Dr. Mann who's just faking it, trying to get somebody to rescue him. So he can ended up marooning them and stealing their ship to go save himself. Ends up being that the third one at the end, which is revealed to be the one that was there all along. And, you know, you see you see that at the end. Was it a good choice by Nolan to have McConaughey's character Cooper survive the black hole and go back, you know, and be rescued? Or would the movie have been better to just end after, you know, it's revealed that his daughter through the messages she gets sent? you know, is able to solve this theory and sort of save humans and get them off of Earth into space and beyond? Good question, right? Because I, I think that was probably one of the only things about the movie that really bothered me is like, oh, would someone really be able to enter a black hole and then come back out again? I don't know if right. I really believe that. And I think to your the point you're making somewhat indirectly is that we didn't really need him to live, you know? Yeah. Um, I think there was a, maybe a little bit of uh, Hollywood um, narrative at play, you know, because everyone loved to see him get into the spaceship and leave and go off to, to be with Brand on the on the third yeah. planet. Since since we, I think, subsequent, right after he leaves the hospital, we find out that um, her, her boyfriend or whoever the other astronaut right. who was there had died. Um, yep. So... But, you know, I mean, I guess theoretically, no one really knows what happens when you cross over the event horizon. So maybe you do go into a wormhole and you enter another universe or whatever it is and you can yeah. go through it. But it seems like our humanity and our physical, you know, being is very much tied to this universe and this earth and and that it would be. It, it would seem to be very um, hard to uh, contemplate us surviving that. But again, I think it's also very hard for us to contemplate another dimension. So who knows? That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's always interesting to see how a movie portrays AI, right? So here, the, ro the AI robots, TARS and CASE are benevolent and always there to help Cooper and his team. What did you think of that choice of having the robots be good here compared to other space movies that I'm sure you've seen where AI is generally villainous? Well, I liked it because I'm, my hope is that this is how AI <laughs> plays out in our future. <laughs> That's and right. That this fear is now uh, sort of 
very much more relevant than when I watched the movie in 2014. I feel even more strongly that that should be the case. But I mean, I think that it was, it was, I guess, a really sort of a neutral thing in terms of the movie, because if they had been, if it had been like 2001 and they turned on, on him, I mean, possibly you could have had that be sort of the, the movie, but then I think you wouldn't you, all the whole point of him going in there and them showing that, you know, into the Tesseract and showing that he was communicating with himself probably would not have been relayed if the robots had turned on him and somehow prevented right. him from going in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it would have been too much. I think that's right. I think that, I think it had to be this way. If they were going to introduce these characters, that they had to be helpful, right? It almost would have been too much to have other villains do you think Michael Caine's character was a villain in this movie for lying to Cooper about his mission, that there really only was a plan B in his mind to colonize and not save the humans on Earth? I I mean, I didn't like the fact that he lied, but I did not go as far in my mind to view him as a villain. I think he made a tough choice. And I think that, you know, I think that if Cooper was faced with the the choice you know, he probably still would have made it. I, but I think what Michael Caine's, what Dr. Graham's character realized is that he would need to do something to convince him much more, you know. And it turned out, I mean, they didn't really go down this path, at least not in an explicit way. But you could argue that just like the feeling that Brand had about her, her you know, the, the I can't remember the name of the astronaut that was on the third planet. But the way she felt about him, the way Cooper sort of knew that some that something or someone was trying to connect with him in his daughter's room on the bookshelf. Maybe, you know, Dr. Brand himself sort of knew that if he did this, that there he would somehow find the answer. Right. This movie came toward the tail end of the reconnaissance, the rebirth of Matthew McConaughey as a serious <laughs> actor. So was he the right pick for this role? At first, I was skeptical, but it turned out that I think he really did a good job because you sort of needed that cowboy sort of, you know, flair that he has to believe that someone would be crazy enough to do this, you know, to leave the only two children you have after your wife has, you know, tragically passed away right. and go and do something like this. So you sort of needed him to have that desire and you know sort of cowboy astronaut desire to to do something more um so i came around to him but i think i was um i was a little skeptical at first because i sort of thought that maybe he would have been a better doctor man and that um you know and that matt damon would have been better in his role but i changed my mind at the end yeah i i, I agree I, th I think he did a very good job i think i think nolan ended up wanting like an everyman character sort of like a reluctant scientist, right? That's kind of how I viewed him, right? Someone who, you know, would have been fine being a farmer, but wasn't, right? Had this, you know, vast intelligence, but also sort of the gusto and bravery to to go to space. And I, I think he did well. And yeah, you compare Matt Damon's character in this movie to The Martian. Both of them were there sort of marooned by themselves on some distant planet. <laughs> distant planet, they handle it, handle it in vastly different ways um, in these yep. in these two movies. Mm -hmm. So, all right, this movie is now 10 years old. That's crazy. Uh, yep. Anything else you want to add? I don't think so. This has been a, a really uh, 
cool thing to be a part of. Well, well thanks so much for joining, Aaron. It was, it was really fun. Yeah, same here. It was great to uh, be part of it. Thanks so much. Wow, hearty thanks to Aaron Boone for that great conversation on Interstellar. Thanks for joining Host of Payload. For all your satellite and space law needs, visit us at wiley.law.